Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Professor Chad Goldberg. He's a tenured sociology professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, Chad, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation to come today. Yeah, and uh, full disclosure, Chad and I went to college together at an undisclosed time in the past. So <laughs> We go way back. It's been a little while, and, and congratulations to you on your career really since then, where the work you've been doing is certainly interesting, and that's really why we wanted to get you on the show today. The topic that really brought us together today is this notion of the Wisconsin idea, which we're going to get into as part of the show. And it's, it's certainly relevant to a lot of the conversations that are happening today about the role of higher education, public higher education in particular. And uh, there's a really interesting history to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and we're gonna get into that with Chad. But typically the way I begin shows, Chad, is we like to get the origin story of our guest. In your own words, what got you to where you are uh, today in your career and your intellectual life? And uh, in particular here, what brought you to, to the course that you're teaching? And uh, just to be clear, this course that says the Wisconsin idea, it's also publicly available. And a lot of the ideas that we're gonna be talking about today part of why I wanted to have Chad on the show is because they're very broadly applicable and we can use this example uh, in Wisconsin as something that we all, I think, can draw from. But Chad, just to start, can you share with us what got you here and why listeners to a show about trends in education, what might folks want to know about you? Yeah, I have been at the University of Wisconsin for about 20 years now. And in a way, it's funny that I have become involved in this effort around the Wisconsin idea, renewing the Wisconsin idea, because I'm not from Wisconsin originally. I did my graduate education in New York, and I, when I was doing my graduate education, I, of course, I knew about the University of Wisconsin. It's a, it's a famous institution, and the sociology department there is, has a very good reputation and has for a long time. But I, it's not some place that I imagined that I would end up. And when I, I didn't know about the Wisconsin idea. It's something that I learned about here. And it's something that became um, important and valuable to me after I came to Wisconsin and after I learned about it and after I, I learned about the history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and just to round that out a little bit, uh, within sociology, what, what drew you to sociology? What is, what is relevant about sociology for folks today? One of the questions that we'll probably get into as well is the softer sciences, the social sciences, liberal arts. These are all areas that come up regularly on the show where uh, folks are questioning what's the value of understanding those things, particularly as they relate to job placement and returning value to the economy, uh, et cetera. Just to round out a little more your background and your history, what brought you to sociology and why do you think it's still relevant today? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I became interested in sociology way back when you and I were in college together and uh, started taking sociology classes there. And uh, I was always interested in social and political affairs. And I think that's uh, a part of what drew me to the discipline. I, I specialize in political sociology, study of, of um, uh, politics and, and uh, political life, uh, but from a sociological perspective. And uh, I would say that I was drawn to it for a couple of reasons. One, I, I, when I discovered sociology as an undergraduate, I had the feeling that uh, sociologists, at least the sociologists that I was interested in and liked reading, 
We're asking big and important questions about society and about social life, about um, the meaning of uh, freedom, about um, equality and inequality, about um, the organization of work, about all these things, which I thought, wow, these are, these are uh, really interesting and important questions that, that, that are crying out for answers and concern all of us. And it's not that they always got the answers right or that they were always, uh, that they had the answers complete. I still think there's questions. Uh, what's valuable to me are the questions and the ongoing discussion about how to answer those questions. And of course, the answers uh, may need to change as times change and as society mm -hmm. changes too. But that was one reason. And, and the other reason, of course, is that I, I was sort of uh, always interested in democratic politics and political participation and citizenship. And so that has manifested itself in different ways. When I was an undergrad, I was, as you remember, I was involved in student government on campus. Later, I became involved in my union and I'm interested in politics in the sense of how people come together to try to understand and resolve common problems and how people can do that better, more effectively, and what are some of the problems, the obstacles, the barriers that prevent people from doing that sometimes. Yeah, it makes sense. And, uh, and then moving into the, this idea of the Wisconsin idea, and you also have a book coming out on this topic in the fall as well. What's the name of the book? So the book is called Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea. It's coming out uh, in November from the University of Wisconsin Press. You can also find it on Amazon. Uh, it's available for pre-order. It's actually, I'm really excited about it. It's an edited volume. It's not just me. There are a number of uh, contributors who have um, uh, written essays uh, for the book. And uh, so it's interdisciplinary. There are contributors from a variety of different fields. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book comes directly out of this public lecture series, of course, that we'll be talking about today. So it's many, almost all of the, the chapters, the essays in the book are based on lectures that were given at some point uh, in the course and in the, in the public lecture series. Right. And the public lecture series began in 2016. You were the first instructor of record for the lecture series back then. And now uh, this is a return engagement for you. So this is the, the second time uh, it's been running since 2016 each fall. And now you're back for, for a, another run through. And uh, we're going to want to get into that as well, just to understand the, how things have changed, how the course has changed, and how 2020 being the the crazy year that it is, how the whole notion of the Wisconsin idea and the curriculum you've designed in support of this course has evolved in line with the time. So we'll definitely want to pick up with that uh, a little bit downstream. But before we do that, for folks who aren't familiar, and full disclosure, again, I wasn't familiar with the Wisconsin idea until we caught up maybe a few weeks back as we were talking about what we might do for a show. It's a pretty interesting notion, and I think it has a lot of relevance in this day and age. So can you summarize for our listeners what the Wisconsin idea is, and then maybe some ideas around how it's, it's particularly relevant to the times that we're living in today? Sure, yeah. And, and really, as I said, I didn't really know anything about the Wisconsin idea until I came to Wisconsin, and I didn't learn about it right away. It was something I heard about. It's, you know, in Madison, on campus at the university, people still talk about it a lot. But if you're not from there, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. It's a bit of an irony because uh, 100, 110 years ago, it was nationally celebrated. There was a book that University of Wisconsin graduate and civil servant, a guy named uh, Charles McCarthy, wrote. It came out, it was published in 1912, called The Wisconsin Idea, which was explained it for the whole country. And Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, wrote the uh, preface and introduction to the book, uh, praising what was going on in Wisconsin. He was very excited about what was happening in Wisconsin. And, 
uh, urging Americans uh, all over the country to pay attention to what was happening in Wisconsin and try to learn from what was happening in Wisconsin. But it's a, it is a, a kind of, um, it's an idea that has a long history. It goes back at least to the early 20th century. And some people have traced it back even further to one of the early uh, presidents of the university for the end of the 19th century. But I would say at its most basic, it is uh, an idea that is focused on the public service role of the university and emphasizes this very strongly that the University of Wisconsin as a public university, it's, it's a reason for existence. It's primary reason for being the reason why it gets public support is because of the, the many ways that it serves the public or tries to serve the public. And um, I, I would add to that, it, one of the things that, that I think arguably distinguishes the Wisconsin idea from other public service missions, because you, you see this sort of thing a lot with uh, land grants or, or public universities, many of them uh, uh, imagine or, or conceive of public service as a very important part of what they do. So Wisconsin is not unique in that way, but maybe one thing that distinguishes Wisconsin and the Wisconsin idea, and something that um, I, I argue in this book that you mentioned, I think in Wisconsin, the notion of uh, public service always had this democratic emphasis, this democratic conception. And that's why the book is called Education for Democracy. The idea was that the university was not just serving the public, as important as that is, but as um, the historian Frederick Jackson Turner put it, it was serving democracy. And so uh, one interesting and important question is, how does a university serve democracy? What does that mean? And, and, and how can that best be done? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of one of the reasons why I think that is particularly relevant these days, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, is that in light of many of the challenges we're facing as a nation, and in light of many of the challenges that universities are facing, whether it's the response to to the pandemic, or whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, or the the hyper partisan nature of our public discourse, is that folks are questioning in more fundamental ways the role of higher education and, and also the role of, of, of public higher education. And I thought that in particular made the Wisconsin idea something worth getting out there to our listeners. Can you talk a bit about why uh, you think it's relevant? Uh, it was relevant enough in 2016 to, to begin this course with your colleagues and why in some ways perhaps it's even more relevant uh, to this day. What are, the, what are some of the alternative notions around what, a, what higher ed or a public university should be? And then how is this renewing this idea important in, in these times? Yeah, great questions. So I think those kinds of issues about the, the role of the university and about how higher education, public higher education should develop and to what extent and how it should be supported those were the impetus for the public lecture series and the course and ultimately the book. In 2015, the person who was then a governor of the state of Wisconsin, at that time it was Scott Walker, mm -hmm. as some people might remember, this made uh, national news, it was in national headlines, Governor Walker actually tried to rewrite the mission statement of the University of Wisconsin system. He didn't like the old mission statements. And uh, what he tried to do was uh, take out uh, all the sort of flowery language about um, the pursuit of truth and improving the human condition and, and these sort of lofty ideals that were in the old mission statement. And he thought that it would be better if the mission was more narrowly focused on uh, workforce development and uh, training students for uh, jobs and uh, forget basically forget all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. There was a, 
a big uproar about it. And uh, Governor Walker claimed that it was an accident, a drafting error, he said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we later found out from the press and from investigative journalists that it wasn't an error. It was very intentional. But uh, it, it alarms a lot of people at the university because we thought it's, it's not that we're against preparing students for jobs. Uh, I would say that, just speaking for myself and my view, of course, that's an important aspect of, of what a public university should do. Uh, I know uh, that a lot of my students, this is important to them, especially when the economy is not doing well. They have, of course, they have concerns about, am I going to get a good job when, I'm, when I get my degree, when I get out of college? So it's not that um, that's bad in itself. Uh, I think what a lot of us were concerned about was that the, the role of the university would be narrowed to only that. And so it would preclude all the other ways that historically the university has tried to serve the public and serve democracy. And at the very least, we thought if that's what's, if that's the direction that we're going to go in in Wisconsin and, and, and other states as well, we should at least have a vigorous public discussion about this. Is this really the direction we want to go in? Uh, what are the alternatives? Is there another vision, another conception of the university's role that is worth defending? And uh, we found that we weren't really having that public discussion, that these changes were being pushed through uh, without it. And um, so, so part of the impetus for the, the public lecture series and the course um, was to try to spur that discussion and, and really um, raise those issues uh, in a way that they wouldn't just be decided by politicians or university administrators, but would really be a subject of uh, debate and, and conversation among all the people of the state. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and in some ways, that, that's true to the, your origin story as well, where these questions may not have answers, but having that discussion, and in this case, in particular, a public discussion, not just something that is insular to the academic community, this course is both for credit for, for Wisconsin uh, students, but it's also something that is publicly available and that is something that we will share out as part of this, this podcast, too. If folks want to hop in and they want to understand what's happening through this conversation, it's designed to be a, a public engagement around these topics. Absolutely. Yeah. And anybody uh, in the world can actually uh, go to our website. And uh, it's uh, easy to remember. It's www.wiscidea.com. W-I-S-C. IDEA.com. Um, it'll take you to the uh, website for the course, the public lecture series. What you will find there are uh, recordings of all of the public lectures that have been given since 2016. Uh, we're continuing to add uh, recordings uh, this fall for, for this fall's lectures uh, and um, other information about uh, the, the, the course in the public lecture series. And of course, the lectures themselves, this fall, we're doing something different because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We used to do the lectures in person. We would have a big lecture hall in Madison. Anybody could come. But of course, if you're not in Madison, it's not easy to, to get to a lecture. This fall, all of the lectures are online. So actually, anybody anywhere in the world can participate. It's easy to get the information to join the lectures. They just have to contact me. And, and, and we welcome everybody's participation. We, we think that these are issues that go far beyond the borders of the state of Wisconsin. Uh, as I think you're, you pointed to, you, you uh, suggested, these are issues that certainly all the states and, and the United States are facing. We've had these uh, discussions and debates about public education coming up in, in places other than Wisconsin. There's similar kinds of questions, similar kinds of debates. And, uh, and I think also in other countries, uh, other countries are also experiencing now some disagreements and, and debates about public education, higher education there as well. Yeah, and it is really interesting. I will want to get your thoughts on how this year is different beyond just the fact that the class is online. 
but the fact that these higher education can now be online does change the game in terms of opening up access. It's something that's been talked about since the, the advent of the, the massive open online courses in 2012. There's this sort of notion that anyone can, can get access to a great education, but the actual delivery of that has faced challenges and we haven't really seen it, it fully blossom. In some ways this year may be an inflection point there and, and I'd love to get your perspective on that. I know we're still early into the course, but, uh, but do you have any thoughts on how opening up this to online access maybe changes the conception of the course and changes how the conversation may evolve? Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I have two minds about MOOCs. On the one hand, I, I see a lot of potential there for public outreach and for really improving and widening access uh, to higher education and to uh, these kinds of discussions that people wouldn't otherwise easily be uh, able to join. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of positive aspects about them, but there's also some concerning things about the way that they have been implemented. Yep. I'm concerned about, for one thing, as a, uh, somebody who works in higher education, that they can be used in a way that basically concentrates teaching in the hands of some very highly paid, highly remunerated uh, people at elite institutions, mm -hmm. and then the instructional staff, faculty, and academic staff at other institutions, there's then a, a kind of pressure to to make those jobs less well-paying, less yeah. secure. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's inherent in MOOCs and the technology, but I am concerned that they end up getting used that way. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, that's bad for higher education, I think, in the long yeah. run. Yeah, yeah. And then the related point, I think, is the massive aspect of it, where the alternative, I don't know if you've heard of SPOCs, but uh, small private online courses, which also live long and prosper Fox, but, but it is a counterpoint, which, which is emerging. I've heard several of my guests have been talking about it in earnest more of late, that the, the forcing function of COVID moving pretty much all of education online has opened up the opportunity to have enough teaching talent to be able to apply to the problem so that you can actually have a more intimate engaged conversation uh, that's more akin to what you might get in a seminar or a smaller lecture series. And it sounds like what you're delivering here is probably more akin to that, where rather than being about the massive part, those who can attend live, in some ways you want to get those diverse perspectives and to drive the engagement. So more to come on that, but in addition to- Can I, to, can yeah, I uh, just, to, just to jump in there, just to add on, because I think that's important. So you're absolutely right about that. And with our public lecture series, of course, we've, we've tried to do it both ways. We try to eat our cake and have it too. Mm -hmm. So the, the public lecture part, I mean, that is potentially very massive. And, and so many people could tune into the lectures. There is an opportunity for people to ask uh, questions at the end of the lecture, but it's not that small interactive setting that you're describing. Yeah. So uh, from the very beginning, we always paired up um, those public lectures with a, a kind of smaller discussion-oriented seminar meetings for undergraduate students who enrolled uh, at the university who wanted that kind of experience. Yeah. And uh, so we try to have it both ways. I, I, somebody like you who um, went to a liberal arts college, I think that kind of experience is really valuable and really important. We didn't want to lose that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how we're trying to do it. And, and I also wanted to add that it's, it's important for another reason. Uh, one other concern I have with the massiveness of MOOCs is I actually think that there's real value in having um, a plurality of different people teaching subjects in different ways uh, that we're not. Uh, it's, you can say, 
ah, well, Chad Goldberg is doing this Wisconsin idea course. Nobody else needs to teach this. They could all just tune into the lectures, but that would really be a loss because other people would teach it in different ways, with different mm -hmm. emphases. And that's part of the reason why, from the very beginning, we didn't want the same instructor uh, every year. So yeah. up until this year, uh, it's, been an, it's been a different instructor each year. Yeah. And um, so our idea was to have a kind of, at least a pool of faculty uh, who would take turns doing it and do it in different ways. And, and I would even see value in different institutions doing it in different ways. So the way that we do it in Madison, maybe it's not the way that um, they would do it at other University of Wisconsin campuses and, sure. um, uh, you know, and, and Stevens Point or in Green Bay or someplace else. Yeah, so I think there's real value in having a plurality of different approaches and methods and so on. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It, it reminds me of a lot of the, the research we've talked about on this show around diversity and getting diverse perspectives to the, any group process is generally gonna make it more effective. So rather than uh, saying, it's almost like the Khan Academy, which is really interesting in a lot of ways, when it was really exclusively Sal Khan was when I think it ran the risk of what you were describing, where it becomes really one person does it, and that's the only voice that we hear. And a lot of the research that we've seen really in organizational psychology and in a lot of uh, group process is that you do want to be exposed to diversity of thought. And in some ways, that is a challenge, getting back to the point I was making before around the, the divisiveness and the, the filter bubbles and echo chambers that many of us are living in these days. In some ways, that runs counter to the notion of public discourse that I know is very uh, foundational to the Wisconsin idea and to the way in which uh, you and team have been delivering it. I would love to get some perspective from you on how the course and the delivery has evolved. The fact that you're in Wisconsin in 2016, which also was a presidential election year and Wisconsin was, was a battleground state then. And, and now in 2020, we're recording this right at the, towards the end of September. Things are really heating up in terms of the U.S. presidential election and the, the rancor there. In addition, there's the you're not far from Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Jacob Blake happened. And everywhere in the world is facing the, the challenges of the pandemic and the social distancing and sheltering at home. So do you have any perspective as the course is getting underway for the second time? First, in, just in terms of the evolution of the course itself, but then secondly, in terms of the, the exigencies of 2020, how is that informing your thinking and how is that informing how the course is progressing at least so far? Yeah, I, uh, I do have some thoughts about that. I, as you say, uh, Wisconsin wasn't always this way. But in the past 10 years, Wisconsin has become very polarized uh, politically, very divided, and mirroring trends of the rest of the country, I think. It is odd because before 2010, Wisconsin didn't have that reputation. There were, of course, political differences. There were Democrats, Republicans, but uh, I think there was there was just less less divisiveness and, and less polarization, and more a bit more bipartisanship to try to work out solutions to common problems. That was always uh, historically more in the Wisconsin tradition. And when we developed the course in 2016. The course was being developed when the state was in the midst of a series of pitched battles around the various, I would say, transformative policies that uh, Wisconsin Republicans were pushing through the legislature. At that time, the party basically had control of all branches of government. It controlled the governor's office, both houses of the state legislature. There was a conservative majority in the state Supreme Court. They were really able to accomplish everything that they set out to accomplish, even things that sparked a lot of public opposition 
including, if the listeners uh, maybe recall this way back, one of the very first things that Scott Walker did as governor was to uh, push through a, a pretty radical uh, reform of labor law in Wisconsin was a pioneer in granting collective bargaining rights to uh, public sector employees and uh, legislation that, that Governor Walker and uh, uh, Wisconsin Republicans pushed through early in uh, Walker's first term uh, really eviscerated those collective bargaining rights for public sector employees. Mm-hmm. And of course, that um, set a precedent for people in other states, for politicians, governors in other states who, who have also tried to do similar things. We were aware of this context, but we didn't want the course to be politicized. That was actually really important to me. And I, I was part of a group of people that was deeply involved in developing the course from the very beginning. And I, w- I felt very strongly about this. We didn't want the course to be partisan mm-hmm. or politicized. We thought that actually would not be in the spirit of the Wisconsin idea. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, for instance, I, I always uh, opposed the idea of inviting politicians from either party uh, yep. to deliver the lectures. There were sometimes suggestions, why don't we get this political official or that political official to, to give a lecture. And, mm-hmm. and for the most part, we have avoided that uh, mm-hmm. for precisely that reason. We didn't want to politicize it. But at the same time, we felt that there were important political conflicts and changes going on in the state and that they should be addressed in the public lectures. And that first, that first year, we did have a number of lectures from people inside and outside of the university analyzing some of the changes that were going on politically in the state, the reasons yep. for that, the likely consequences, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the right way to do it. Now, coming back four years later, you're right that the political context is, is different once again. We, it's not that Wisconsin has become less polarized, probably more so. We have a divided government now. We have a Democratic governor and the Republicans still control the legislature and still have the conservatives still have a majority of the state Supreme Court. But other issues have uh, risen to the fore. And when I and others were uh, planning the lectures for this fall, we thought it seems to be the central issue is going to be the COVID-19 pandemic. So we included a lot of lectures about the Wisconsin idea and public health, or the role of the university and public health. As we were uh, finalizing the lectures, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, it's not that it began then, of course, it's been going on for a long time, but uh, really, really gained uh, a lot of uh, a lot of publicity. Uh, it really exploded in the streets. There was there was there were demonstrations. There were reaching more people were involved. There was a sense of outrage about uh, George Floyd. And um, again, not to say that there was no outrage about uh, previous killings, but somehow something seemed to have changed uh, with the development of the movement. And then we started to scramble, thinking this is also hugely important. Mm-hmm. This is uh, really at the top of many people's uh, concerns. It's a it's a uh, a, a hugely important public issue. So we tried to include a little bit of what we could, as much as we could this fall about that. We have a, a lecture that I'm very much looking forward to later in the semester about sort of inclusion and in the Wisconsin idea, this issue of who got left out of the early conceptions of the Wisconsin idea, to what extent have um, those groups been included, to what extent do we have more work to do to include those groups. And I think that's, that's really important. I, I would like if we had been able to do more of that the problem is that there's always a bit of a lag in terms of uh, when you plan the lectures and then sometimes current events overtake what you've, you've planned. And that mm-hmm. happened to us a little bit this fall. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but you're, it's still an evolving conversation and it is a place where you are looking to engage a broader set of perspectives. And I think Julie noted on the, the point about not making it overly politicized or partisan because it does seem like that is consistent to the ideals originally espoused around this idea and and really some of the aspirations perhaps for renewing this notion. 
I do want to get some of your perspective on other trends that you might be tracking outside of what we discussed so far. But before we get there, I would like to get uh, a little bit more perspective from you on the future of this idea. And it did sound like because it is a public discourse, there is a chance that the renewal doesn't happen and that the we're a trend spotting show, but we're also trying to understand potential futures that we may move forward towards. So do you have any perspective on where public education may go, whether they're good, bad, weird, indifferent? I would be curious where you could see things heading and, and also whether there are ways in which our listeners or individuals could become activated to try to move things in a positive direction. Yeah, I do have some thoughts about that. I, I, I will answer the question, but I also just want to add quickly that in, in, in regard to the sort of avoiding uh, making the, the public lecture series, of course, partisan or politicized, I should have also said that um, not only did we think that was a bad idea, but we actually can't do that. We can't do that because of uh, state law and university policy that prevents university employees. We cannot use uh, public resources, university resources, to advocate for a party or for uh, ah. a, a candidate or an official. And I think th those are good laws and policies. Those mm -hmm. are a legacy of progressive reforms from um, decades ago. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I, and I, I think those are, those are good laws and policies. Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, in terms of the question that you asked, absolutely. I, I think the impetus <clears throat> for the, the public lecture series, the course and the book, uh, as I said, is we want to stimulate a discussion about public education, higher education, public universities, their role in a democratic society, what their role should be, and how and why the public should support the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, we felt that that discussion wasn't happening, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we could have this discussion, we could have a vigorous public debate, and it could be that, that people like me who have a, a different view uh, about uh, what the role of the public university should be end up losing that debate. And uh, mm -hmm. people like Scott Walker, maybe they're able to get the support of the majority of citizens. So it is, it's, it's certainly possible that we could lose that debate, but we should at least have the debate and, and, and people should know uh, what they're doing and what they're getting before we continue moving in that direction. I think that for a long time, there has been a movement to overhaul public universities and higher education in this country. I would, for, for lack of a better term, I would say that uh, well-funded and powerful groups in the country that have been pushing what I would call a, a market model of the university, and that has different components. Part of it is what I would say is this overly narrow, exclusive focus on uh, job training. Another aspect of that is taking a managerial approach to the internal governance of universities, putting aside traditions like uh, in, in Wisconsin, we have a tradition as other public universities do in other parts of the country of um, university governance being shared among different stakeholder groups, faculty, students, and others. And the idea that those groups should have some influence, some, some say in how uh, the university is governed. Uh, so moving away from that model, more top-down kind of managerial model of, of, mm -hmm. of governance, that's part of what I would call this uh, market model. Yeah. Um, there was a documentary film that came out a few years ago uh, that your listeners might know, uh, a movie called Just Starving the Beast, which... Uh, really um, uh, did a very nice job of, of uh, illuminating some of these trends, some of the groups behind them, and some of the ideas behind these trends, why some people think that these are good ideas and why they think that the university should move in that direction. But that, I think, is what people like me are up against. Um, mm -hmm. We have a different view, a different understanding, and I don't think we have the same level of resources or, or power, but I think what we can do 
since we are educators, is to try to um, stimulate some public discussion and education around these issues. Yeah, yeah. And reminiscent of even if you don't necessarily control the legislature, if the people get the message and if they activate and take to the streets, as, as many folks are doing more broadly around Black Lives Matter and some of these other issues, uh, now the Supreme Court is up with the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat. How much can the ideas get out there that then may activate some movements that will ultimately be another powerful component of our democracy and our, our public discourse. Uh, so with that, this is lofty too. I like the lofty conversation. Thank you uh, for, for having lofty <laughs> ideas that let me, uh, let me wax on this a little bit. But I always love to ask my guests, what other trends you're noticing that we haven't talked about so far? So we've been going deep on the Wisconsin idea but are there other trends broadly around the world around us and education and the future that we haven't talked about that are capturing your imagination that you wanted to get out there for our listeners? Yeah, I, I, I think in a funny sort of way, you could look at the efforts that I've been involved in, this public lecture series and course in the Wisconsin Idea, this new book on renewing the Wisconsin Idea, and you could say, Chad, this is backward looking, it's conservative looking, because you're, you're looking back at this sort of storied past and, and uh, all these great things that the university did uh, in the early 20th century and into the mid 20th century. Uh, the book covers a lot of that, uh, covers a lot of the ways that the university has tried to serve the public and serve democracy through the course of the 20th century. And, and, and you can say, look, times have changed. And you want to go back to the past and we need to move forward. But I actually don't think that the, the book is conservative in quite that way. I, I, I do think that there are things of value uh, that we can find in the past and that there are things that remind us of the wide range and uh, wide scope of ways that the university can serve the public and serve democracy. And that can inspire us. But I don't think anybody wants to say, oh, we, should, we can just go back to the way we did things in 1912. Nobody, right. uh, I think, would say that. That's why the book is called Renewing the Wisconsin Idea and not conserving or preserving the Wisconsin idea. Right. One of the conclusions that I've come to as a result of my involvement in these efforts is that um, as valuable as the past is, as a source of inspiration, uh, it would be a mistake to think that the Wisconsin idea is something static, uh, that it was invented by some guys in 1912 and it's yeah. been the same ever since and it's just a matter of clinging desperately to it and holding on to it. I think actually what we see when we take a historical look is that it, it has always been something that has developed and changed over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that as it should be, it has to uh, develop to adapt to new circumstances. And uh, so for me, the question is, what are good ways of adapting, good ways of developing and changing, and what are ways that maybe we should be a little more skeptical of that um, distort the original meaning or the original inspiration for the Wisconsin idea that basically use the slogan for things that are not very consistent with um, that, that, that early inspiration. And, uh, but nevertheless, I do think it's, it's an idea that, that needs to be renewed and not merely conserved. And I mentioned uh, one other way that I think that's true, and this is something that is covered in some of our public lectures over the past few years and in the book. We should be forthright about acknowledging, as, as some scholars have pointed out, that 100, 110 years ago, the people who developed the Wisconsin idea, they had a much more narrow view of who it was that they thought the university and the state government should be serving. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were a lot of groups, racial minorities, women, Native Americans, there are a lot of groups that were, that were left out of that early vision of the Wisconsin idea. Yeah. And one of the things that we've been thinking and talking about, and, and this obviously has a connection with Black Lives Matter, is uh, 
to what extent has it become more expansive, more inclusive over time, and how, how can we make it more so in the future? How can we make sure that there aren't important groups, important voices that are getting left out of this lofty, these lofty ideals of lofty aspirations about serving democracy and serving yeah. people with good, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's, it's great, but if there are important groups that are getting left out of that, that defeats the purpose, right? So that's another way in which I'm interested and hopeful about uh, new directions for the future. That, that one of the directions should be that we continue to work to make this a more inclusive idea. Yeah, build a more perfect union and uh, build a more perfect public university while you're at it is all very much in line with uh, the Wisconsin idea and the work that, that you've been doing, Chad. Thanks very much for joining us, Chad. It was, it was an amazing conversation. Really appreciate you coming and I appreciate the work that you're doing.